Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello and welcome to The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40. Created and hosted by me, writer and broadcaster, Sam Baker. My guest today is the journalist and broadcaster, Kay Adams. Kay is the host of Radio Scotland's morning show and a long-standing panellist on ITV's Loose Women, amongst other things. But if you're a fellow Strictly addict, you may be more likely to know her from her sadly brief but memorable stint in the current series, where she partnered Kai and became the latest member of the First Out Club. A journalist by training, Kay is also the co-author of Still Hot, 42 brilliantly honest menopause stories in which she and a host of other women share their very different menopause experiences. She's also the co-host of the podcast, How To Be 60, which she started because she found the prospect of turning 60 terrifying. I'm not as bothered about being visible, whatever that Mm. is, as I was at an earlier stage in my life. Kay joined me from her home in Glasgow to talk about being an age denier, coming out as a menopausal woman and the time she lost her ability to feel joy, but didn't realise that that could be a symptom of perimenopause. We also discussed making peace with ambition, being a confident person with a shed load of insecurities and how Strictly taught her that she never wants to subject herself to reality TV judgment again. Should we get Strictly out of the way? Because you probably don't get to talk to anybody without them going, let's talk about Strictly. How was it when you were approached? How did that feel? Um, It was entirely unexpected. And I say that very genuinely because, I mean, obviously I've worked in television for a long time, so you know the big shows, you know who's doing the rounds, um, you know, there's various sort of bookers that you will have met over the years and you're familiar with and you'll bump into and you kind of know the time of year that they're looking for people for certain shows. Um, you know, that's just like a dull awareness that's out there, not something that I was particularly fixed on. It's not really part of my um, career plan, you know, to sort of use reality shows. And I don't mean that in a bad way because... I've got no problem with people using reality shows, but it's just not really been part of my portfolio. Um, <laughs> and so I never, ever expected to be given a call by Strictly. Um, you know, I think there are other people who might be thinking, oh, gosh, it wouldn't be really nice if Strictly called, or maybe even, I really, really want Strictly to call agent. Please get on to Strictly. Um, whereas it just wasn't on my radar. A, I didn't think they would be interested in me. And B, because I have never seen myself in that scenario. I'm not a performer, a tits and teeth performer, Mm. as you would term it. Um, I've certainly never danced. I am a show-off, I suppose. But that isn't a bit of me that I've ever had a desire to show off because (laughs) I've never thought I had anything to show off. I'm a show-off as a talk because I've always been much more confident in my ability to talk. Uh, but I haven't particularly felt very confident in those other areas. So very long-winded way of saying it was a complete shock, completely unexpected. And to be honest, I didn't believe it at first. I just thought, well, here we go, random troll. Let's see who's out there. And then we'll start to weed it mm. out because that's the way these shows work. 
Um, and it was actually my agent and <laughs> very cynical about your agent, but I thought, oh, my agent's trying to convince me that I'm still relevant. So she is sending in the strictly <laughs> email, you know. <laughs> and so I think my initial response was something like, oh, yeah, that'll be right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, relevance is a really interesting word, isn't it? It's, um, it's one of, that comes up again and again when I'm talking to people, that kind of feeling as you get over 40 and certainly over 50 that, oh, well, maybe I'm not relevant anymore. Hmm. Had you started to feel like that? Um, no, to be honest, um, which is maybe testament to my massive ego. I don't know. Um, <laughs> not at all. No, I hadn't. I think my experience on Strictly has perhaps slightly shifted me to plagiarise your podcasting a little bit on that. But no, as an individual, I don't think I had particularly felt that. Um, and I've spoken to lots and lots of women, um, mm. you know, over the years when I was much younger and I'd hear older women talking about feeling invisible. And obviously, as I've got older, contemporaries of mine talking about feeling invisible. And it wasn't something that I particularly felt that keenly. Um, I think the more positive thing that's probably shifted in me is that my burning ambition you know for most of my life I was very very ambitious and constantly looking out thinking oh god I'd like that job and that person's got that job and why's that person got that job and how can I get that job and you know that has abated pretty kind of naturally to be honest and that's not to say that you know I'm not interested in the professional world or life or whatever I still am but I'm not driven in that same kind of way so I'm not as bothered about being visible whatever that mm. is as I was at an earlier stage in my life and you know I'm a confident person with a lot of insecurities I don't know if you can be both of these things or if that's an oxymoron or good, I'm just a moron that's a good way to put it I think but you know if I settle down uh, I know that I've got very good personal relationships I've got a good family I had the benefit of wonderful parents you know, so the real things in my life are good. All the kind of chatter and the noise out there, of course, I'm as wobbly as anybody else. But, you know, the basics are, are good. And when I do get a bit discombobulated, then I kind of remind myself of that. And because of that, you know, I'm not invisible to my partner. I'm not invisible to my children. I'm not invisible to my friends. I'm not invisible to my good work colleagues. And those are the things that matter. I would be mad if I didn't realise that in terms of a bigger world and, you know, how many times the phone rings and am I ever going to present a Saturday night uh, shiny floor show? No, I'm not. But how much does that matter? Did you used to want that? Um, well, maybe not a shiny floor Saturday night show. Um, I probably did want, if I'm being really honest, the attention. You know, mm. you don't go into television without wanting some attention. And, and I think it'd be very difficult to convince anybody otherwise, you know. Um, so, yeah, I wanted to climb a ladder. I wanted to be recognised. I wanted to be seen to be successful. And that has just gently gone, thank God, because I think it would drive you absolutely mad. It's bloody exhausting, isn't it? Oh, my God, terrible. I was just thinking when you were saying just now about that kind of process you go through, like they've got that job. How did they get that job? Well, for me, there was a phase in my life in my 20s and 30s, maybe early and probably also early 40s where I was, it didn't matter whether or not I wanted the bloody job. Yeah. It was more like they got that thing. How did they get that thing? 
And now I feel like, like you say, I'm still ambitious, but I'm not that kind of obsessively ambitious to have what other people have got. I just want to be successful at what I do, if you know what I mean, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, I mean, ambitious as, as a concept, you know, doesn't really exist without attaching something to it. Well, you know, what are mm. you ambitious for? I mean, like my daughter is 20. She's uh, in third year at university. And like a lot of her contemporaries have had a very difficult two or three years going into university. Oh, God, yeah. She is very, very driven, uh, very hardworking, overly hardworking. And I recognize a lot of my young self in her. And when she gets very stressed, which she does, um, and I'll say, well, you know, what is this about? What is this about? Why are you driving? So, and she'll always say, I want to do well. I want to do well. I want mm-hmm. to do well. Mm-hmm. And I recognize that from, you know, ancient history. And so I say to her, okay, okay, right. What does that mean? What does it mean? being well and she rolls her eyes and tuts and tries to get me off the phone and and I can understand her frustration (laughs) because she knows that I know and I know that she knows that we probably know what she means but I'm just trying to get her to drill down a little bit but she's in that phase of her life that I remember you just want to be seen to be doing well you want to feel it and you want to feel it from within and you want to feel it from out with you know, your light is shining very brightly and you want people to see it. And it, it is exhausting because actually, once you do think, and I think maybe that is what age does for you, you start to really drill down into what that doing well is. And the great thing about television, I think working in television, you meet so many very successful wankers. Yeah. That oh, yeah. You really do start to think, well, hmm, if that is doing well, does that match up with what my version of doing well is? Or really successful, talented people who are deeply unhappy or who mm. have very poor personal relationships. And I think it's only after, you know, you've lived a few decades that, that you do get to a stage that you start to, you know, curate a little bit more and, and really start to interrogate what doing well is. Yeah, what well, that kind of, in a way, it's what we, where we started, which is about your priorities. Yeah. I guess. You know, I'm 59. Um, if I was to continue to have that kind of blind, driven mentality that I had when I was my daughter's age of 20, I would have spontaneously combusted by now. Um, yeah. And then I would have found that invisibility question. I would have found that much, much more difficult and much more frustrating and much more a source of, of real angst. Do you think working in the media makes that kind of invisibility question more pressing? Well, yes and no. I mean, it depends because, you know, I've said this a million times, but my dear mother said to me, you were never employed for your looks. And um, she's absolutely right. You know, I mean, I never presented myself based on my looks because it's not something that I've ever felt particularly confident about. You know, um, if I push myself forward, I mean, don't get me wrong, you know, I think I look pretty good. Um, I make sure that I exercise and that I eat well and I like to make sure that my hair's cut and, you know, I'll occasionally put on makeup. So it's not that I don't have any awareness of my look, but that's very different from expecting to be employed expressly because of your looks, mm. um, which a lot of people in television are and a lot of women in television in particular are. So that has never been me. My looks have been acceptable enough to allow me to be employed for the stuff that they're really employing me for. Um, I guess that's where I have, have been. Obviously, as you get older, your looks change. <laughs> that great expression, oh, she's good for her age. Oh, oh God. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny, I was interviewing somebody the other day. I think it was actually Mr. Motivator. Um, uh, who was <laughs> oh, God, I'd forgotten about him. Yeah. I know. There it goes. And um, 
he, he was only swimming and uh, he said at one point he was 69 and he's a very, very thick guy. You know, he exercised all these time. And the audience spontaneously clapped at him being 69. <laughs> I think this oh, is so God. weird, isn't it? You know, I mean, like, if he'd come on and said he was 42, I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's like well done for existing for this length of uh, of time. So <laughs> I've completely confused myself at that point. But it, it's that aging process. You think, well, no, I don't feel that different, really. No, no, exactly. But I've read you describing yourself as being a, a bit of an age denier. Yeah, and in fact, you know, I started my own podcast this year as a result of that because I am 60 at the end of this year. I was born in 1962, which is actually a ludicrously difficult thing for me to say. I'm still sort of working on that. I am a work in progress because, I mean, for reasons that you could probably stick me in therapy for six months flat, I had a problem with my age, still have a problem with my age, but I've decided to out myself. So I'm hoping that that represents progress. Um <laughs> My mum was always, you know, very, very defensive of her age and, you know, withheld information about her age. She was over 21. That was it. Um, and <laughs> Did you she, know how old she was? Or? Oh, yeah, yeah, nosy kids. But, you know, we would never say it in company, ever. I mean, she would be genuinely annoyed. You know, when it was her 60th birthday, we had a 60th. Well, we wouldn't have a party. She wouldn't be kidding at a party, but we would recognise it with a card. We would never put a number on the card. I mean, there was all these kind of mm -hmm. daft things. Mm -hmm. And actually... That was for very good reason. You know, she and my dad had a business. They were in the haulage business. Um, she was a very dynamic individual who was kind of ahead of her time, uh, working in a very sort of macho business, worked very hard. She was known as a bit of a, I hate to say the word bitch, um, because I don't like to attach that to my mum, but she a bit of a ball breaker. And I would imagine that somewhere along the line, she probably thought to herself, okay, being a woman in this environment and being an older woman in this environment are two potential handicaps that I have mm -hmm. so she can't get rid of the fact that she's a woman but she obviously decided to ditch the aging element of that fair enough and although we laughed and laughed about that and I mean it was always a huge family joke which she took in very good part I've obviously internalized it um, yeah. and then you go into a career like television which doesn't exactly encourage you certainly the time that I went into it to be particularly vocal about your age. And I also, and this is an odd one, but my birthday is at the end of the year and I happened to go to school in the earlier year rather than the later year. And, you know, I was reasonably good at school and I think I must have got some kick out of being close to the top of the class, but nearly a year younger than everyone, you know. That yeah. kind of I mean, that's getting a bit deep, but I think that must have been part of it because I always remember when I came through university, I loved the fact that I got a job as a TV reporter and I was earning more than my age. So I was 24 <laughs> and I was earning 25 grand a year. And I thought that was that's pretty coolest. good then. I thought it was the coolest thing ever. I did. I mean, I look back on myself and I think you pathetic creature, but there you go. I obviously got some kind of kick out of it, you know, and so it just kind of stuck with me. And so I lied about my age or I obfuscated. I mean, if somebody, you know, held me against the wall and put their hand around my throat and said, what age are you? I would have told them, you know, I wasn't prepared to go to my, uh, my maker for it. But if I could get out of it or I could sort of just skate around it then that's what I would do yeah I think it must have been when I was 40 that I remember noticing that kind of equivalent people at work who used to be older than me were now younger mm. and it's a bit like if you're going to lie about your age you need to do it consistently and right from the start <laughs> I wasn't very good at that actually I got caught <laughs> <it every time. laughs> 
<laughs> so I was listening to the podcast this morning. Um, why did you decide? First, you've outed yourself twice, haven't you? Because first of all, you kind of decided to out yourself as a menopausal woman. And now you've decided to out yourself as nearly 60. What is it about you that needs to force your hand into the flame like that? Well, I actually do wonder whether or not that is part of the aging process. Because, I mean, I do notice, I interviewed Nikki Campbell recently, and then I've known Nikki kind of most of my adult life professionally. And he's become a lot more confessional, if you like. And various mm. people, Richard Coles, I mean, obviously it's time that people do autobiographies. And I do wonder if it is something that comes with age, that as you are developing yourself in a career and things, you're trying to build a reputation and then you want to protect that reputation. And, you know, there's quite a sort of cagey, process that you go through mm. but maybe once you get to a certain stage you think well do you know what the cake is kind of baked now and actually it feels good not to be protecting all of those things that you protected before and just kind of let it go like your water's breaking I don't know a strange parallel but <laughs> you know just because it actually takes quite a lot of energy to maintain mm. a reputation, doesn't it? And to be what people... And I mean, go back to my daughter. I can see that she does that. She, she wants people to think of her as this. She wants people to think of her as that. She wants people to think of her as the next thing, which actually is quite exhausting for her to maintain, you know? And I, I think it is. And so maybe you just get to a stage that you think... <sighs> Well, you know, who am I doing this for? What am I doing this for? What's to be gained by maintaining this persona? So I think probably unconsciously that's kind of happened. I mean, in terms of the menopause, I mean, I was absolutely shamed into being more open about that by my colleague, Nadia Sawala. Um, who... <laughs> but she's not backwards in coming forwards about it, is she? No, no, no. And I mean, that's been a really interesting friendship. I mean, we've been very good friends for 20 years now and we are polar opposites in so many different ways. But I think we share kind of core values, which is probably why we've maintained the friendship. But I mean, she will talk about anything. She's very out there. She's very performancy. You know, she's everything that I am not. And I'm just a much more private person. I just don't go around sharing personal details unless I absolutely have to. So the menopause wasn't particularly dreadful for me. Well, certainly not in terms of what I was aware of. I mean, I think as I have gone into it, I've realised that even people like me who don't think they've been affected by the menopause quite possibly were, but they just didn't attach it to the menopause. You know, when it comes to mm. things like anxiety and confidence and your mental attitude, I suspect there's probably connections there that you don't recognise. I mean, if you've got hot flushes and you've got insomnia and if you've got aches and pains and you've got very obvious signs of the menopause then you're forced to address it but if you don't then you're not really forced to address it um, and I was probably in that category whereas Nadia typically Nadia had every symptom <laughs> under the sun and a few that she invented um, and uh, I, I would always joke with her oh, for god's sake bloody menopause shut up and, and so she would get irate at me for doing this <laughs> I remember she always shouted at me you're perry you're perry <laughs> what is she on about perimenopause obviously i don't think i had heard that expression at that time mm. and i would be eye rolling furiously and so she forced to be out of the menopause closet i would say and actually when it's... she did i thought this isn't as bad as i thought it might be it's actually quite a good space to be in to share these experiences with other people whereas previously i thought oh why am i going to be talking about that was that because you didn't want to look old hmm. maybe yeah yeah, yeah, I think so. Uh, because 
you know, the menopause, I mean, we like to think that we're, well, yes, of course, we've made progress in talking about the menopause. I think there have been really, really good things that have, have happened. But, you know, everything has got a darker side and everything's probably got a brighter side, haven't they? I mean, nothing comes mm. out as an unalloyed good or an unalloyed bad, I don't think. And the menopause is out there, but to a certain extent, it's been slightly weaponized. She's menopausal. I mean, just mm. says so many things and not a lot of them are positive, are they? No. And women, we do it ourselves. You know, we have these jokes. We perpetrate these jokes. We laugh at these jokes. And so we're, we're quite complicit in it. And so why would I want to be associated with something that was seen as a byword for past it, dowdy, mm. crotchety, over the hill? You know, I'm, I'm hoping, obviously, that we will move through that in terms of our sort of public discourse. But I think you'd be fooling yourself to think we are through it. Yeah, I mean, just baby steps at this point, really, you know, starting, mm. I think, to see more and more women saying, well, yeah, I am. What about it? You know, mm. but I think it's, you know, it's early days and it's also the women who can, you know, the women who can say that yeah. and carry on working. And I remember doing an event for the shift and an, a woman in the audience said to me, my husband takes the piss out of me. My kids take the piss out of me. What do I do? And that's a really bloody good question, because if you're getting zero support at home, mm. then why would you want to expose yourself? In yeah. That way? Funny on that, I have um, like significant hearing loss in one year, which is age related, I think. You know, mom and dad both kind of lost their hearing a bit. And so, I mean, obviously anyone at any age can lose their hearing, but it is associated with getting older, you know, when it kind of mm. comes on later. And my partner and two kids will relentlessly take the piss out of me for being deaf. And actually, I find it really, really annoying and wearing. And I absolutely say to them, just stop it. You know, if I had mm. any other kind of impairment or whatever, you know, would you laugh at me and get irritated and roll your eyes and refuse to repeat yourself, you know, which is what they do. And it absolutely infuriates me. And, you know, if I were someone who was suffering really badly from insomnia or mood swings or whatever attached to the, the menopause, to have that kind of reaction on top would make me very, very unhappy. Very sad. You know, you can't always brush these things off. You do internalize them because it's a time of your life that you're quite porous. Mm. And all of these things do start to, to creep in, I think. But the other thing, talking about the aging process, and we've spoken a lot more about women being, you know, the menopause and what people experience in the menopause and all this is good is good. But the next frontier is post-menopause. Yeah. You know, so I am now largely, I would imagine, through the menopause. You know, I'm 59. What life is there for me now? God, that sounds very depressing. I'm perfectly optimistic and happy about the prospect of life. But that isn't really part of the discussion, is it? No, no, it's not. And I think, I don't know whether you found this, but certainly when I was researching to write the book, you know, you get on Google as you do and you're Googling older women and there's nothing between women with babies and women with kind of grey curls on the saga cruise. So now, you know, we're trying to open up the conversation about menopause, and I think that's happening to an extent, but I worry that it could be one of those things that people are like, oh, bored, that's, we're over that now. Yeah. But there is a kind of a big gap. There's still a big gap between menopause and, you know, grey perms and saga cruises. Uh, absolutely. There's a lot of life, a lot of life, if, if we're lucky. Well, I mean, I interviewed uh, the author, Kathy Lett, the other day, um, who is 63, yeah. and she is, uh, you know, an extremely ballsy woman and very <laughs> aware. 
and uh, certainly nobody's putting her in the corner. That's that's for sure. But <laughs> God no, you know she's just, so the menopause is is behind her, and and her view, you know, because of your hormonal change, etc. And she personally um, is on HRT. That's her choice. You know, she feels that this is a time that um, she becomes, in her words, more male, which translates into more selfish, which sounds a really awful kind of indictment of men, but more willing to give herself time and to give herself Mm. care rather than what becomes, I think, really a habit for a lot of women. And there's a word that sticks in my head that's a horrific word, which is martyr. And actually, I'm thinking mm. back now and I can remember, although my mum was not typical of her generation, a woman of her generation, I, I do remember sometimes my dad, who was a lovely man, but, you know, OK, nobody's a saint. That was his sort of um, his verbal put down. Don't be a martyr. Mm. You know, I remember that when I was young. It stuck in my head, a martyr. Right. OK, what does that mean? What does that mean? And the fact is, she was taking the major responsibility for the house, despite the fact that they were both in a business and they worked together. Um, she still took the major responsibility for um, the house. She still took the major responsibility for us. And she was working full time uh, in the business. You know, so if at times she kind of exploded, then oh, she don't be a martyr. Um, yeah. We get into the habit of doing, right, okay, I'll cook you a dinner. All right, okay, you don't want that, right? Okay, I'll cook you a dinner. All right, okay, so you're coming in at half past eight. All right, I'll put your dinner there. And, you know, all these other sort of things that you, you have to do. And, you know, you just don't have enough time for yourself. You know, I don't think we're being martyrs, but... but we're just trying to please everybody and make sure that everything works and there's some sense of harmony. And once you've done all that, the odds are you've run out of time for yourself. Whereas I guess what Kathy Lett is saying is that that stage of life, that, you know, hopefully those caring responsibilities are reduced. You have to claim back that space, claim back the time. Now, that's a very positive message, but I don't know if the rest of the world's caught up with that yet. Not yet. No, I'm pretty sure. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started So you were having like what I think sounds like was the emotional symptoms or mental symptoms, whatever the word is, of perimenopause. And you had, do you have teenagers and ill parents at the same time? So you must yeah. have been the squashed filling in the middle of a sandwich. Yeah, yeah. Um, you only kind of see that in retrospect. I didn't really put menopause into the equation at the time. But dad became ill at the beginning of 2015. And then so he was ill until he died really in 20. 20- 
to 17 and required a lot of care. And my mum provided the majority of that care, but we were a very close family. So, you know, it was a responsibility the whole family took and, and I took as well. And then because obviously we're very worried about our mum, you're worried about your dad, he's the one who's ill, but really worried about my mum. You know, she's late 70s and she's still trying to run this business with my brother and she's looking after my dad and you can see that she's absolutely exhausted and she wants to, you know, so that was nightmare. And then dad died in the February and mum had a stroke in the June, which oh felt God. incredibly cruel, really, really cruel because my brother and I were just, well, obviously reeling from the loss of my dad, who we love very much, but, you know, wanted to try and make sure that my mum had a bit of time for herself you know but she'd never had and then unfortunately she had a stroke and she died a year later in 2018 after a second stroke so that whole period was horrific to be honest it, it was horrific I mean it was just go to work go to the hospital go to work go to the hospital go to work go to the hospital and yeah my kids were 12 and 9 and I just constantly felt that I was failing them because just wasn't able to be there you know so at the weekends you know that idea you have of taking your daughters for lunch you know princess yeah. square and round the shop not that I'm sure that would have driven me bananas <laughs> but yeah there was none of that and um I felt enormously guilty about that I still feel enormously guilty about that yeah so yeah. the menopause was the least of my worries it's, yeah totally you know I mean I guess now with the benefit of hindsight I think oh god there was menopause on top of that but because I had such pressing obligations I, I didn't really think about the menopause yeah and if you're feeling shit there's plenty, plenty of other things to put it down to frankly wasn't there well, yeah, and also there just there wasn't a lot of time for introspection. You know, <laughs> I mean, you just had to to get on with it. You know, um, and believe me, I'm not saying woe is me. There are so many no. people, and not just women, who find themselves in this situation. Absolutely not just women. The only time that I kind of I always did allow myself a bit of wallowing is that, you know, I was still continuing to work. I pulled back my work quite a bit in that I did the stuff that was easier to juggle and nearer to home. So I didn't travel as much. Still had to travel a bit because you think, well, to be honest, you come off the television at that age, you ain't going to get back on again. Mm, um, yeah. So I had to try and maintain my foot in that door to a certain extent. And so I would be in London once every other week or whenever, you know, and uh, going from place to place, maybe you're walking through Covent Garden or you're walking through Soho or something like that. And you would, I would look in the windows of these sort of bistros, wine bars, coffee bars, etc., And you would see like a group of women or just a group having a glass of wine and chatting and stuff like that. And that was when I used to think, oh, Oh, I don't know if I'll ever do that again. Oh. You know, which is pathetic, isn't it? But that was a little time that I thought, actually, there is no room in my life for that bit at all. And I really missed that bit, you know, because I'm quite a social person and I really didn't see my friends particularly. I was probably a really shit friend, actually, for three or four years because that was the bit that went. Definitely, that was the bit that went. Yeah, and you don't realise how much you miss it till it's not there. I'm not sure what the right phrase is. That kind of, you've got to tough it out if you like, keep going, the kind of coper thing, you know, I've got to cope no matter what is quite common, isn't it? I mean, amongst women of our generation and, but and older. The thing but... is, what else are you going to do? I mean, I, I don't, like going back to that martyr word, I mean, I hope I'm not appearing to be a martyr because it yeah. would have been harder for me not to do it. You know, I'm not going to abandon my mom. I'm not going to abandon my dad. I'm not going to abandon my kids. All I'm going to do is try my best to keep it all spinning. Because I guess I, I didn't obviously 
absolutely no. But I had somewhere in the back of my head the thought that this time will pass. Mm-hmm. Really, I knew that there would be an end to it at some point and that I would be able to do these things that I wasn't able to do at this point. So there really wasn't any decision and I didn't actually have any resentment whatsoever. I mean, I was knackered, I was miserable, I was sad, um, I was guilty, I was all of those things, but I wasn't resentful because, like I say, what else am I going to do? But I think that might be where the martyr, the crux of that martyr word lies and maybe that resentment is... Hmm. What makes you tip over into just doing what has to be done? Mm. I don't know. Just thinking out loud, really. Interesting. I was listening to a podcast that you did where you were talking about going to the GP and them immediately offering you antidepressants. Was this around this time? No, when was that? I put it, that was, yeah, so I would be 51. Oh, God, so it was before it all got really shitty. Yeah, it was before it got shit. Yeah, that was that was the, that was a good bit. Yeah, I think that's what I would absolutely identify as the one very clear symptom I think that I had of the menopause, and it probably lasted about five months, and I was utterly joyless. And ironically, career-wise, some really good things were happening, some really exciting things, things that I'd wanted to happen for quite a long time. So outwardly, everything was great. At that stage, my mum and dad were perfectly well. The kids were younger. They were all good. So it should have been, you know, a, a really great time. And I was just plunged into joylessness. And I just, I couldn't work it out because, I mean, I'm very fortunate throughout my life. I mean, obviously I've had my ups and downs and I can be a bit kind of dolorous. Um, but generally I bounce back up again. I'd never ever experienced going to bed feeling bleak, waking up feeling bleak, going through the day feeling bleak. Um, repeat, 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 repeat. And then having to put on some kind of face because actually, oh, look, you know, you're doing this show and somebody's going to fly you down here. Somebody's going to do this. Somebody's going to do that. You know, things are going great. Isn't this exciting, Kay? And I'm going, yeah, yeah, it's great. It's great. And then I go to the toilet and I think, oh, my God, I feel shit. And I, I just couldn't, I just couldn't reconcile it. I mean, it was, and I did speak to my mum about it. I had a very good relationship with my mum and um Got me some St. John's wort from uh, yeah. a homeopathic shop. And actually, it cleared. It cleared of its own accord. I think it probably lasted about five months. <laughs> the Christmas that it was still really bad, um, I had got Ian a box set, how times change, of um, yeah. Breaking Bad, which was very popular. Oh, at the excellent time. Christmas present then. Yeah. But I had no idea what it was about. I just heard this thing was really good and, you know, he loves... Um, he loves that kind of stuff. And we went to Spain for Christmas and uh, there was a DVD player there. And uh, I was just feeling awful. And we were having outwardly a lovely, lovely holiday. But I was feeling awful and, and finding it quite hard not to show it. Um, so I so, said, well, let's, let's watch this thing. And the opening scene is Walter White is 51 and he's got terminal lung cancer. And, you know, I'm yeah. saying, Ian, I can't watch this. I cannot watch this. <laughs> it was like, oh, my God, this is a sign from above. I didn't think it was <laughs> any more miserable, but now I do. I actually went on and loved Breaking Bad as a Um But anyway, a month or so later, it cleared. Now, that was probably my perimenopause. 
But it was probably a year later that I was just feeling a bit crummy. Though not as bad as that five months. That five months was off the scale bad. That was really bad. But then move on a year, I was just crummy. Um, and I went to the doctor and it was, and she was a woman about my age, actually. And the thing is, you go, you're embarrassed because there's nothing terrible. I mean, I can't say, look, mm. my hips in agony or, you know, look at my shoulder. It's just, you're going to your GP and saying, I don't feel anything good. It just feels a bit pathetic, yeah. doesn't it? And I was feels like a bit of fuss about nothing, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it felt rubbish. But anyway, I I obviously felt bad enough that I did make the appointment, which is not like me. I'm never at the doctor, touch wood. But um, so I explained as well as I could that I just wasn't feeling particularly um good about life, and you know I was very down. I was finding it difficult to pick myself up, and you know, and that's what she said. She said, "Well, um, it'll be the menopause. I can give you antidepressants or HRT. Which ones you want?" <laughs> That's just like that, no information. It really um, was like that. And I said, well, I said, I don't know anything about HRT. And I really didn't. I, all I knew mm. was what was really out there, the breast cancer breast risk. Cancer. And, and so I was mm. very keen at that point not to go down that road. And I said, I really don't think I'm depressed. I mean, I've got lots of friends who've suffered with depression in their life. And I thought they're having something different from what I'm having. You know, I, di- I didn't feel that. And that's, so I think that's what I said. Well, I don't know much about HRT. And I really don't think I am depressed. And she said, well... That's it. And I said, well, OK, thank you very much for seeing me. And I walked out. God. This conversation isn't going anywhere. I thought there's no point in me wasting her time, her wasting my time. I, I just thought, right, OK, cut and run. And that was it. And got on with it. And then I probably got plunged into that other nightmare and never thought about it again for four years. So did you ultimately just, as you put it, get on with it? Or did you end up seeking HRT somewhere else? Um, I, I did, actually, but much later, about <laughs> 2019. But by that time, obviously, I mean, the difference in information that was available between 2019 and 2014 is, you know, yeah, huge. huge. Um, and I was very worried about the breast cancer risk, and I certainly don't, still don't discount it. So I had a lot more time to speak to people about it, to read about it. And I went to see, I mean, it was a private doctor, because again, I didn't really feel that, I didn't know what kind of conversation I was going to have with that GP. I was also aware that the quality of the HRT that you get is is quite significant. And also, it's just the time, and I'm not in any way saying this to knock the NHS, I appreciate the pressures upon it, but I didn't want to decide in eight minutes whether or not mm. I was going to go on HRT or not. So I was prepared to pay somebody so they'd sit and speak to me for an hour and a half or two hours um, yeah. because it was such a big decision. And so at that point, I did decide to do it. And I'm still on it, but I'm, I'm toying with coming off it. Why? Why in particular? Just out of interest. Well, because I think I need to know whether I need it or not or whether it's a benefit. I mean, mm. I don't want to just say, oh, that's it. I'm on it. I'm never coming off it for the rest of my life. I mean, you know, it is at the end of the day, you know, a medication. So I think you need to know why you're on it. I love the new conversation we have about the menopause. It slightly worries me that we seem to swing from one extreme to the other. Yeah. It's like nobody yeah. on HRT, everybody on HRT. Um, yeah. and, and that's not to be making any kind of judgment about it, but just my, my nature tells me, well, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, everything needs to be reviewed. Everything needs to be evaluated. And it's a good thing to take stock. Um, so I'm not saying, yeah, I'm definitely coming off it. I'm, you know, I'm not saying anything definite, but I think it's probably time to take stock. Yeah. No, I agree completely about the conversation. It's why can't we just provide more information so 
more women are able to make their own decision. Why does it have to be how it was 10, 8, 5 years ago? HRT is bad. You're a traitor to the sisterhood. You're going to get breast cancer. It's gone from that to now. You must take it because, you know, yes, it's beneficial to your bones. Yes, it reduces the risk of heart disease. You know, there are those things that are very important, but they're factors. They're all just factors. Yeah. And the other thing that I hear quite a lot that really concerns me is I'll hear a lot of women saying, oh God, my GP, I just went in and demanded HRT. Or you'll get that as advice. Just go in and tell your GP that you need HRT. And like, I wouldn't go in and tell my doctor that I needed statins or tell my doctor <laughs> that I needed, you know, medication for diabetes or, or anything else. They're the professional. You know, that's the medical professional. I, I want them to advise me. I want to be informed. I want to have a, an active conversation. I don't want to go be in and put my GP's arm up their back and demanding HRT. <laughs> that doesn't seem to me to be a particularly good scenario. I think the problem is that they seem to be, you know, from my experience and a lot of the women I've spoken to, but to generalise, they seem to be a lot less well-informed about HRT than they are about statins. I yeah. think that's the problem, isn't it? That it's not or has not historically been a very big part of the training. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, that that's the case. But, you know, I mean, given yeah. that a large chunk of the female population has kind of caught up and is now much mm. more well informed, then you would have thought that they would be a bit further on in terms of their updated uh, information and mm. attitudes. You know, if we you can think. know a lot more about it now, why can't they? Good question. So you're 60 at Christmas. How are you feeling about that now? Now you've had all those women on the podcast telling you how to be um, 60. I feel fine. I feel absolutely fine about it. I mean, it's not that I go into deep depression on my, my birthday. You know, I'm not Peter Pan. No, actually, it's, it's been really good for me to do the podcast. And apologies to anyone who's listened and think, um, why should I listen to your therapy? Um, because it's really <laughs> made me focus my mind. I suppose my natural tendency, because for all these reasons that we've discussed, is just to ignore it, you know, and, and just keep pushing on and to a certain extent both my mum and dad did that because they had their own business and you know they were just constantly up to their eyes and in, in different sort of pressures and it was their life you know they come from you know very ordinary working class backgrounds and they built this business and you know they had a lot to be proud of and I think their sense of self-worth had probably become very enmeshed with this business that they built and mm. you know none of that is necessarily bad and so they never stopped and thought, right, okay, what do we want to do with this bit of their lives? And I think having spoken to so many people who are around this age or a bit older this age and, and everyone obviously with a different experience and attitude, it has made me think, okay, we don't know the future. Let's see, I can, well, you can't bank on anything, but, you know, presuming my health holds up um, for a few years, you're very aware that time is not necessarily short, but it is limited, you know? You know, when I was 25, I remember I used to think, oh, I'm 25, okay, so maybe I'm less than a third of the way through, all right, my life's a shambles right now, but it doesn't matter, I've got time to make it up. Um, when you're 60, you don't have that luxury. Um, mm. You do have to say, okay, healthy lifetime is likely to be limited. What do I really want to do with this bit, however long it turns out to be? And I think it has forced me to address that. Whereas if I hadn't 
I started the podcast, I had these conversations, my natural tendency would just have been to ignore it and just carry on doing what I'm doing, working at the same pace, doing the same things. If somebody asks me to do a job, I'll do the job. And I've always resented that, not resented, but I've never liked the idea of a bucket list. I've always thought it just sounded like <laughs> yuck. Actually, I'm kind of coming around to it in that, again, it's just a case of saying, well, okay, what, what do I do? You know, what, what do I really want to do? And that there's every opportunity if I don't, you know, actively take steps to do it, I'll be six foot under and it never happened, you know? And I think that is the significant difference for me about this stage of life rather than middle age. Certainly my middle age, there wasn't really, I mean, obviously you've always got choice in life. I'm not saying that, but it didn't particularly feel like you had choice. You know, I had two young children. I had my parents. You've still got to earn money. I'm thinking because I had my kids later, right? Okay, got to get them through university, got to get them up and settled. You know, you had all of these demands, targets on you. Whereas at this age, I could actually actually say, do you know what? Let's have a smaller house. Don't need this big house. Pain in the ass anyway. Actually, I'm yeah, not that Oh, God, yeah. I'm not that desperate to have a fancy car um, mm. because actually I never drive the bloody thing anyway. I've got so much crap in my house, I'd happily take a flamethrower to it. I don't need another candle. So you can really make choices about what kind of life that you want to have and what kind of things are, are important to you. And if it is spending time with friends or traveling or studying or setting up a new business if you want, or, you know, taking on charity work, volunteer work, you know, trying to sort of put your experience to good use, then you need to focus on that because it's not going to happen just by chance. You are going to have to make it happen. And so it's a very good time to take stock, I think. Like when I was younger, because I was so ambitious and I had these targets for myself, I wanted to achieve this by the time I was 25. I wanted to do this by the time I was 30 and I would have this kind of house by the time I was 35 and I would, you know, only stay in four-star hotels by the time I was whatever, you know, that kind of (laughs) But, you know, I had all these KPIs, as they would say in business. Oh, God, yeah. Um, I didn't actually call them that. I saw that in a Michelle Bone no. documentary and it amused me highly. She was speaking about KPIs all the way through and I had to go and look it up. Oh, yeah, that awful. Yeah. But that kind of dribbles out, doesn't it? Well, it has in my life, but it kind of dribbles yeah, out. Yeah, no, it has in mine, yeah. You know, so I had plans when I was 25, whereas now, okay, what's the plan? Well, I don't know. Keep existing yeah. and keep doing the same stuff I've always done. So it's time for a new plan. Is there anything that's making you feel like, have you got a germ of something that you think, yeah, I really want to do that? I want to have more time in my life. I I want to be less on the hamster wheel. My life is really, really busy at the moment. You know, I just go from one thing to the next to the next, a plane to a train to, you know, a program. I don't socialise as much as I would like to. I don't go to cultural events on the level that I'd want to. I don't read books that the, you know, I don't do enriching things as much as I would like to, which I know is, is kind of vague as a plan, but that's the bit that I really feel that's that's missing. And I would like to try and go more in that direction. Yeah, I mean, getting off the wheel is the big leap, isn't it? Because it's so addictive. It is addictive. It is addictive. And when you're younger, you can feed that addiction by saying, well, I've no option, have I? I mean, I've got to. What else am I going to do? You know, and obviously you have to, you have to have an income. You don't want to be living in penury or whatever. But there are a lot of us. I mean, the house is quite a big thing. There 
there are a lot of us of this generation in particular who have been pretty fortunate with property mm. and are probably now sitting in a house that's bigger than they need that's got a reasonable bit of equity maybe don't sell it in the next year because you'll crash but yeah. you know nice wee two bedroom flat would do me just the thing thank you very much <laughs> Brilliant. I've used up loads of your time. So I'm just going to quickly ask you the questions that I always ask at the end. Um, what's your emotional age? 59. Why is that? Have you always been 59 or are you just at peace with where you are right now? It's where I am right now. I mean, I, I have a real thing about, oh, you're young for your age, you're good for your age or whatever. Now that I've gone through this great epiphany, your age is your age. You know, I've got 59 years worth of experience, 59 years worth of joy and trauma and frustration. I'm 59. Give us a book recommendation. So you've just said you don't read very much, but is there a book that has been significant to you through your life or one you've read recently that you've really rated my favorite book of all time is love in the time of cholera gabriel oh, Garcia Marquez. i just think it's the most beautiful beautiful book brilliant um what advice would you give younger women well i'm a bit of a disappointment on this one because i often get asked you know to do the letter you'd write to yourself when you were 18 etc etc and i don't see any point in that because at the end of the day you have to go through life you have to experience life in order to make your own decisions so at the risk of sounding harsh, I would say work it out. You've kind of got to take responsibility for yourself and accept that, you know, there will be difficult times, there will be challenges, you know, there will be times that you want to scream, but you will get through it. You absolutely will get through it because that is life. And the flip side of that is, you know, great joy, great excitement, you know, all of the wonderful things. That's that's the way it is. So you work it out for yourself the way that you want to do it. And don't listen too much to old people. You can watch them, you can observe <laughs> them, you learn from them 100%, you know, absolutely. But don't take their prescription. Work them out for yourself and take the bit. You know, my daughter might look at me and we're very close and I hope she will think, you know, I like that about mum, I like that about mum, I would do that just like mum. Equally, I'm perfectly happy that she says, I'm never going to do that like mum. I wish mum wouldn't do that. That's not the way I want to be. You know, work it out for yourself. Who is your old bird role model? Caroline, who lives across the street from me. (laughs) She is late 70s and she is just the best. She's got such a wonderful attitude to life. She's such good company. She doesn't conform to any of the stereotypes she would attach to any age. She's unique and original. And uh, yeah, she's wonderful. What's your superpower? Tenacity. I'm very tenacious. I don't really give up. It can also be my real Achilles heel because a lot of my friends would say that I don't know when to give up. And there is always a time to give up. But more often than not, it, it works in my favour. And last one is how many fucks do you give? <laughs> Lots. Yeah. Yeah. Lots. Absolutely. I, I think when you sort of sign off and say, I don't give a fuck, then you're out of the game. It's got to matter to you. So yeah, I'm, I'm still, I'm still in the game. I still give lots of fucks. Um, I noticed that Charlene is in the jungle. You're not, yeah. tempted, you're not tempted to do the jungle. Oh, no, I'm not. Do you know what? That's one thing Strictly did tell me. I don't want to be judged again. I don't want to be judged by people who don't know me and who are judging me, you know, in in a way that is entirely random. I don't think it's good for the soul. No, there's no way I could do that. I mean, what with being judged on screen and the social media and the voting, 
No. You have to have cast iron ego to deal with that. Yeah, I'm I'm too um, delicate a soul for for that, and and also because I have sort of lost the desire to be centre stage. It was it wasn't worth it for me. You know, I think if that desire to be centre stage is still very strong, then okay, you take the gamble. It might pay off. It might not pay off. You might get hurt, but you know you might win big. But if you're not even interested in winning big, then the potential pain isn't worth it. That's so true. Thank you so much. I love talking to you. It was great. Lovely to speak to you as well, Sam. Thank you very much. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 